the Inside OSU podcast. We're so glad you took the time to download and listen. I'm Mally Jones. Today, we are going to talk about narrative theory, or simply put, what stories people tell and why they tell them. Dr. Sky Cooley is an assistant professor at Oklahoma State University's School of Media and Strategic Communications. His research is focused on narrative theory. Cooley sat down with OSU's Vice President of Research, Dr. Kent Sewell, to discuss the narratives of the stories that people tell and how those give us a better understanding of their perspectives on the world. During the interview, you'll hear a little background noise. This interview was recorded at the Iron Monk Brewery in Stillwater back in February at a Research on Tap forum. So, here's Dr. Sky Cooley with Dr. Kenneth Sewell on this week's Inside OSU podcast. Let's talk about what you mean by the stories we tell ourselves. Now, I, I know you're a strategic communications guy, so you study media of various sorts. So, when you say stories, are you really just talking about like stories in the news? Or are you talking about something that might be, uh, dare I say it, more psychological, like <laughs> stories we tell ourselves? Well, if we talk about narrative and the stories within them, we are talking about something uh, psychological um, in that we're talking about the way that the brain sequences and orders the objects that you encounter in your, your, your day-to-day life and environment and how you contextualize those with all of your previous experiences. Um, the way that we make sense of our environment um, is through story. So it doesn't matter if you are thinking about how you're going to go up to the counter and, and order a beer. It doesn't matter if you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner this evening. Um, and it doesn't matter if you want to think about yourself as uh, whether or not you think of yourself as a good person or a good parent. All of those things are done through narrative. And what we do is we really look at those different elements of stories uh, that people tell to try to get a better understanding of their perspectives on the world. An example of this um, on like a societal scale would be to imagine that you watched every movie that came out of South Korea or India or pick a country, and you watched every movie that came out this last year uh, from that country. Uh, imagine what you would know about that society if every sci-fi movie portrayed like a dystopian future versus whether it portrayed a very utopian future. Imagine what you could learn about social norms and etiquette, how to eat, uh, what would, uh, how to greet someone in public. Um, imagine what a hero would look like or what you might learn about a hero or, or, or heroic action or even a villain. Uh, and so those are the elements of story that we really try to pay attention to. Our research group, the, the MESA group here at Oklahoma State University, we work with, I'm going to throw out a ton of acronyms, so just you know, bear with me. I uh, don't do acronyms. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we work with um, the Strategic Multilayered Assessment Group in the Pentagon. And uh, what they ask us to do is to look at the stories that are coming from other nations about what they think about national security, what they think about their political process, uh, what their concerns are over U.S. positions. And so uh, in very real senses, we live out and perform the stories that we tell one another, and our job is to go in and and dig deeper into those stories to make sense of them. Okay, so let's take one of your more prominent projects, because you did one that looked at the perceptions of certain foreign countries on our last U.S. presidential election. And we're not going to get political here, I promise. But, <laughs> but, but you, you, were, you did this project that looked at the perceptions of these countries in reference to our last elections. So before we get into what you found, help us understand what your inputs were, what, what you used as your data sure. for this study. So this study came across um, from CENTCOM, our U.S. Central Command, 
Uh, and they had asked uh, the think tank that we work with, the SMA, to analyze basically how different nations and areas of the world were going to respond to the potential change of, or the changing of guard that was going to be the new U.S. administration coming in and how they might respond to one candidate versus the other. And they gave us a whole series of questions to look at, but we, were, we figured since we were already doing this work that we might as well run a parallel study that just looked at the election. Um, and so to do that, we were at the time we're working with a system called the M3S, or the Multimedia Monitoring System. It's a Raytheon-produced technology. Um, it was available to us from Texas A&M, which is where uh, Dean Randy Kluver and Global Studies, he was there at the time at Texas A&M. Uh, we've been working together for a long time. And so uh, that system, uh, it pulled broadcast, print journalists, and social media data coming from China, um, Russia, and a variety of countries across the Middle East, including Iran. Um, and basically what you got from that was a transcription of whether it was the social media stuff or the broadcast stuff or the um, online uh, news sources. It was really a, just every single thing that was actually said, written, and produced in those languages and those formats from the sources we had, about 30 for each country uh, that we looked at uh, across a wide variety of political spectrums. And what it allowed you to do was put in certain keywords and it would filter out all those stories for you. And so that was our data point. We basically looked at news media that was available, open source material, so nothing like classified or, or secret or on the dark web, everything that was publicly available. And it was basically just a scraper system that pulled all those news sources for us. Gotcha. And for that project, that's what we used. Okay. So now you and your team use what I've read in some of your work called a narrative toolkit. What are the tools in your toolkit? Sure. So uh, one of the advantages that we've got with working with the SMA is uh, when, when CENTCOM or PACOM or, or Project NOR ask any uh, question to us, we work with a, a, a wide variety of teams, like uh, somewhere between 20 to 30 different organizations and entities. Some of them are private industry. Some of them are other academics, um, think tanks themselves. Uh, and then sometimes we're working with you know, stuff that the military produces in-house. And in seeing the way that they packaged what they do, we, you, know, you get to see a lot of different skill sets that are presented in sort of neat little you know, phrases. So our narrative toolkit was an effort to kind of condense all the different things that we do into like a packageable, this is what we bring to the table. Um, narrative theory is really flexible. As I said earlier, you can look at it at like an individual level. Right now we're on a, a project with CENTCOM that looks at de-radicalization uh, potentials or inoculation against radicalization for at-risk youth and refugee camps in Syria. So we can, we can hone down in on, on individuals and the stories that they tell themselves. Or, as I mentioned earlier, you can look at large societal types of, of stories. What the narrative toolkit is, is all the different perspectives that we're able to bring to bear on any particular topic of interest or question that's being asked. It's, uh, sometimes it's field work that we go and talk to local communities in Oaxaca or Tijuana. Sometimes it's pulling news media stories. Sometimes it's looking at different policy initiatives and the way they're crafted. Sometimes it's looking at television shows. But it's a narrative analysis of different stories and all of those different stories layered. To do that, we use a wide variety of techniques. We um, have very qualitative types of, type of work that we do that's very human-oriented, looking for themes and story. Um, the way that character, characters are portrayed or picking out nuanced things like irony. Uh, but we also use uh, very systematic algorithmic types of functions. We work with a lot of different computer Algorithmic science. functions, that sounds like math. Yeah, yeah, it is math. It's, um, it's, we work with a lot of computer scientists that will help us do word co-occurrences. So we had a project once where they asked us to identify, they gave us a list of names and they wanted to know every time that name popped up and what places they were going to. 
Um, so we can do things like that. We can also trace narrative patterns. So if you've ever seen a rom-com, you know exactly how the story is going to end. You know exactly where the rise in action is going to be and the drop in action. You can actually pattern that out um, visually. So we can do that. Uh, and we can also trace the spread of specific narratives. So we're working on a project now with Ohio State University in their Mirshan Center for International Security Studies, where we're looking at disinformation narratives that come from China and how they pop up all across the globe. And so we're looking at the geography of it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you can think of it like an actual mapping structured it. mapping of it. Yeah. So everything from like a human read to these more metric-driven mappings. That's so some of this is done by artificial intelligence tools and computer tools, but other of it is done by you and the students you train. That's right. Uh, we also just have read this stuff and map it out. Yeah, we create, what we try to do for the human side of it is uh, we'll do like a, a deep dive into the air. We normally work with people, if we're looking at Russia, for example, we have people who have lived in Russia or are from Russia um, that know the language, that understand the contextual nuances and of the environment. So it's not enough just to know the language? No, it's not enough to know the language. You have to have a sense of the place and the people. I mean, uh, imagine listening to uh, the, the speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave um, or versus reading a transcript of it, how differently it comes across. Um, the, the human element and all the different nuances and layers that we bring to our language and to the stories that we tell is it's very rich. It's not just a, about reading something. It's, you have to have a cultural understanding. You have to have an understanding of the history of a place. And so we try to bring that in. And that also informs the way that we do not artificial intelligence. We call it, it's called human in the loop uh, machine learning, where there's like a human overseer of all of the different algorithms that are being run just to check and just to make sure that the appropriate context is, is, is being applied over to the automated coding. What are the major takeaways um, from, from this? How, what did you, what, how can you boil down what, on this project, just to give us a sense of? For, for the book project, <laughs> U.S. democracy, when on display in a mediated format, uh, makes a really solid case against itself. Um, <laughs> that's the main takeaway. It, it's so divisive, it's so binary, it is so oppositional that all one need really do is just put it on display for another person to see, and it's hard to make a, a case for that system of governance. <laughs> um, it, it well, looks, there's a famous quote of democracy is the worst Form of government except every other one that's ever been devised, <laughs> yes, right? Yeah, that's right. That's Churchill. Yeah. I, I didn't get it quite right. Yeah. It's a Churchill quote. Um, yeah, that's right. And man, you can really you could really see it in, in the coverage that it was used by authoritarian more authoritative leaning systems um, to really validate um, why democracy is a chaotic, turbulent, not something that you'd want to necessarily adopt. Some of the more specific takeaways to the Middle Eastern region. Um, I would say that there was really a want for stability in U.S. policies. Uh, that was tied to a, a victimization narrative that we found throughout the, throughout the coverage. Uh, a lot of Middle Eastern nations really viewed themselves as being victimized by U.S. policies. And what they wanted more than anything else from uh, a U.S. president was just stability. Just tell us what you're going to do. You know, what's the plan here? Like, what's the logic behind what you're doing? And as soon as we know that, you know, we'll kind of adjust and, and we'll be okay with uh, from, Ch from Chinese perspective, uh, what they really wanted more than anything, matching a narrative of presenting themselves to both a domestic and international audience as an ascendant superpower, as it were. Um, the, the key to their whole system is access to the economic marketplace, right? Um, 
that the status quo of the rules and, and free trade were going to remain so that they could you know, maintain their rise in middle class. And so they were very anti-Trump in their coverage and were, were far more leaning towards Clinton just because of that very factor. Uh, and then Russia, um, man, over the years, it's just become, there's been so many resets with US administrations in Russia. Um, they never work. Uh, and so the Russia's presentation was really just sort of looking for, for easy, soft punches to, to hit the U.S. with. Kind of like, chinks in the armor. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And to point them out, you know, just over and over again, like to highlight this is why you don't want Western-led democracy. This is why Western-led democracy is hypocritical. And again, uh, from the Russian side, they have been presenting themselves as sort of on the outside of the West looking in for quite some time now. They, they're, they're really keen in, in the Putin era to present themselves as a counterbalance to uh, U.S.-led, and particularly uh, the more negative aspects of, of Western capitalism, like a counterbalance to that, their managed democracy, their managed economic systems, their mafia-style state, if you want to be completely transparent, um, to, to sort of justify that. And so to do so, they just took the U.S. to task at every single opportunity. They really weren't pro any candidate other than just wanting to see the U.S. process be chaotic. Who can really take your, your research and turn it into something that is positive for our national security? Most of what we do, as I said before, is we work with these layered teams, uh, right? So one question, 20 groups looking at one question and then sort of synthesizing that all down. Most of the, the groups that we work with, most of the, the people that work in, in the policy side that we're on, they're running some kind of like algorithm. They've got some kind of of machine learning tool that they're applying to whatever the problem is. I'll give you an example of this. Um, the, the Athena project run at George Washington University, they're almost on every single project that we were a part of, and they're really just a wargaming system, right? And so they look at all the resources that a country has militarily, they look at all the resources that you've got, and they say, if country X does this, then country Y is gonna do this, and they sort of game it out that way. <laughs> and that's great, and there are some aspects where those kinds of predictions work well. The advantage of our system and our narrative toolkit is that we don't deal in prediction at all. We don't even deal with the necessary reality of what's actually taking place on the ground. Everything that we're dealing with is sort of the cognitive present moment for a given group of people. How the they way understand. people understand it, not necessarily the way it is. Exactly. Yeah. And the best way to use that or the best way that I can sort of illustrate using that is to imagine if you've got one of those like dreaded speed ticket camera things that they hide in the woods and you're going you know five miles an hour over the speed limit and it zaps you with a ticket right like that's the algorithm type of function like that's a knowing your speed one unit and you get a ticket for that the difference between that and a police officer in the woods or you know behind a sign or wherever they like to hide is that um, they're taking into account what time of day it is how many other cars are on the road what the normative speed for traffic is in that community at that particular time, whether or not the car itself looks to be different than other vehicles that have come through the area in the past, and whether or not the cop has had you know, a bunch of donuts and some coffee and just doesn't feel like turning on the siren this time around. And it's that context of the moment that we're able to add over to all of those different algorithms and, and, and products. And so in many, many ways, the way that our product is used is to give real practical insight into the decisions that are being made from without our insight, a really one-sided perspective uh, of, of policy making. And so that's how we- So policy making, so that includes potentially politicians, 
using this information? Yeah. Or diplomats or military leaders who, well, who really use it? We do work. It? We do work with global ties, uh, which has got a diplomatic function. Obviously, um, we've, we're sort of increasing our presence with them. But most traditionally, we work like we've worked with General Vodal. Um, we've worked with a number of different colonels and majors in CENTCOM. We basically, my level in, in the academy is an assistant professor. I talk with mid-level commanders in the military basically once a week. Uh, I inform the, our, I'm sorry, the MESA group, our team informs them on whatever relevant question they're asking. We're giving them a perspective on that. And we do that weekly. So we talk with military decision makers. And then at these senior review groups that the Pentagon has, we get to talk with both policymakers and command leaders for various branches of the U.S. military. And now that we've been working with DHS for the last year and a half, I guess. DHS, uh, Department, uh, sorry, of yeah, Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. Uh, we've been working with them for the last year and a half. And uh, we do get to talk to some policymakers and some of their more senior members that do the job of relaying the policy t to the policymakers so that we don't have to get super political. So the, uh, you know, the kind of the term that's been around for the last few years this makes me think of is, you know, in the Vietnam era, we had to take the hill, you know, win the battle. But it's since then, we've heard a lot more about winning hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. And to win hearts and minds, they have to understand how people are, under, are, are making sense <coughs> of, of what's going on. Yeah, no joke. So literally, um, Friday, yeah, Friday of this last week, we were uh, talking with folks from Department of Homeland Security on a project that we've got upcoming. And one of the, the policy writers, uh, we're looking at um, migration coming from the Northern Triangle. That's uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And, and just the, 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 the collapse of that whole area, the, the state collapse that's happening, that's fueling the, the migration uh, crisis. And, what this this person was asking was like, hey, you know it would be great if you could just give us like a lexicon of terms that we would use so we wouldn't sound so one-sided. Like, just, how do we even talk about migrants, the migrant journey in a way that would, would resonate with those communities? So mm -hmm. everything as simplistic as like particular terms of language to elaborate as the actual origin stories as to why a problem's happening, we give insight to those. Gotcha, okay. What kinds of research is, is coming up for, for, for your team? Right now, we are closing out uh, a study for U.S. Central Command that looked at de-radicalization or inoculation um, potentials for radical inoculation against radicalization. Now, inoculation, they're going to give them a shot, that's and they're right, not going to be able right. to radicalize them. Well, actually, what we found is that uh, if you look at radicalization, um, what happens is they, they call it a lack of pluralization from your world inputs. So you become very, like, narrowly focused. And that sounds of, like everybody who has a Facebook account. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. Joel Penny wrote a really good book that my class is reading called The, uh, the Citizen Marketer that talks about that very thing, how you just brand yourself on, on social media platforms rather than having a discussion. Uh, but we, we designed some narrative-based games that have um, children sort of create co-create stories and then have them reflect on their roles within that uh, to help f pluralize their worldview. So we're wrapping that up. Uh, we also did a study on Egyptian and the Gulf of Levant uh, that we're wrapping up on the 27th. Our biggest project that we're rolling into, we just got, for us, a, a pretty big grant. It's about $180,000 for a one-year project. Uh, looking at the migration crisis, uh, again, coming from um, the Northern Triangle. That is funded through Borders Trade and Immigration Institute at the University of Houston, uh, which is supported by the Department of Homeland Security. We are also finalists for a Minerva Project grant uh, 
uh, that will look at disinformation uh, coming from China across elections in Southeast Asia. We're partnered with Air University, uh, Ohio State's Mirashan Center. So disinformation. I, people hear that term a lot, especially mm -hmm. nowadays. So we all know what information is, and we know what misinformation is. We've been told something that's not true. Can you quickly give us an idea of what you mean by disinformation? Yeah, so factual misrepresentations, really that can be verified as factually misrepresented, and we actually don't uh, make that decision ourselves. We actually use a lot of different fact-checking organizations that will say this claim is false, and then look for those things specifically within media. So we're actually looking at a variety of different fact-checking sources that are online. We're pulling certain elements from those to look for in media, finding those in Chinese media, seeing the way they're packaged, mapping them, as we said, and then looking for those stories and narratives, matriculation across. They, they, what they do is they use these things called submarine sites um, or the sock puppet, sock puppet uh, social media accounts where they're basically just bots and trolls that are constantly bombarding the, the information environment or the public sphere of a given area. And we're trying to see how much of that uh, disinformation comes specifically from China that we can absolutely trace by showing them first in the Chinese context. And so, gotcha. um, and all the computational side of that is going to be from Ohio State University, frankly speaking. Uh, we're going to be doing more of the narrative assessment that actually looks at what those disinformation narratives entail, how they play on certain cultural elements within different Southeast Asian countries. Um, so we're doing that project. Uh, five projects will get funded of 17. We don't know yet if we're going to be one of the 17. Uh, we will roll into another strategic multilayered assessment, or SMA, contract in March. Uh, we've worked with them for about eight years now, and so it's a solid relationship, and we'll certainly keep that going with whatever, whatever questions they have. And then we have toyed with the idea of doing another election study, just depending on how many of these other things sort of land and move. But um, I don't know. It's, it's such a politics right now and coverage of the elections is just so contested, and it really does paint you into a corner if you start doing that. So I don't know how keen we would be yeah. on doing that specifically, but certainly those other projects. You know, people think of the research we do and how it can contribute to at, at OSU and how that might contribute to national defense or national safety. And I think it's easy to, to pigeonhole some of the, the engineering research that might be related to aerospace or even weaponry and so forth as being, you know, the only stuff that could contribute to national defense research. So I think it's fascinating, and I hope it's been illuminating for people to see how the more uh, narrative, social science, political science, strategic communication science um, can be a part of that national defense conversation in a way that's very useful to our national leaders. I appreciate you sharing this with Yeah, us. we have, I mean, we live in this information environment now, and, and, and it's really technologically driven. And so even everything from what the technology aspects give you are just more surgical ways of applying military objectives. So um, you don't have to go blow a place up. You can knock out their internet, for example, or you can flood their internet with specific messages. Um, and so there, or maybe even just understand how the people are using the internet that they have yeah, might, might that, be of, of military value. And the other thing that's really fascinating, the other thing that's really fascinating, and I'll, I'll just pitch it to my class one more time to get them involved in the conversation just a little bit. Uh, my graduate class, everybody, not my undergraduate class. Um, they're reading a book called Transnationalizing the Public Sphere, and it's this idea of uh, by by Fraser that you can now participate in places within there. There's a joke that the Russians can't participate in the upcoming Olympics, but they can participate in the upcoming U.S. elections. And, and 
and that's really the environment that we live in now, right? Is trying to figure out whose voice matters where. And in part, it, it sort of in, it involves moving beyond just our regular notions of, of citizenship and sovereign territories and trying to understand the dynamics of global media in just new and, and more illuminating ways. And it's cool to be kind of riding the wave of that with U.S. security stuff. So it's been fun. You can go to research.okstate.edu for more details on the Research on Tap program. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Inside OSU podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. <laughs>